This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharudin. You're tuned into the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I mean, I, I think that in order to understand all of KL, you need to kind of drive through it. Uh, it's not, I mean, if, if, you, if you go to very traditional European city, it's it's like in, in order to understand, you have to walk the city. Right? But, but I feel KL is a different kind of, it's a different kind of entity, which you cannot, you cannot see it from that European, uh, that, that idealized version of cities, you know, with plazas and streets, you know. I mean, maybe the old part of KL could be seen or, or, or read through that lens. But I think as a whole, you know, the, the greater KL as an urban entity, uh, you know, which is made up of, uh, you know, sprawl and infrastructure and urban edifices or archipelago, is something that needs to be, you need to, you need to drive around the whole thing to kind of understand the magnitude of what is happening. That's the voice of Nazmi Anwar, author of Background, Frame, Platform, a collection of essays on his personal observations, musings and experiences in the architecture field so far. His description of the best way to experience our city is one among many commentaries that you can find in the book and this is something that we will be touching on later as well. But for now, let's catch up with Nazmi. Uh, well, I mean, okay, I've been teaching a lot and then uh, what else? I think last time we spoke, we spoke about competitions and I think we've been doing that as well uh, with the same kind of people. There's a group of people that I've always been collaborating with and we've been doing one or two competitions a year. As per usual, we've not won any of this competition uh, as outlined in that book. Uh, but I mean, we've, we've, we've kind of... Uh, formed uh, earlier this year a collective called uh, New Office which is a kind of a platform for collaboration to do competitions or project proposals uh, which are involving a few people who also have concerns of their own meaning they have their own practices they do their own thing but let's say when we need to collaborate on bigger stuff then we would do it as New Office so that's the that's, that's the kind of uh, new thing that I've been working on together with uh, some people, uh, well, regular collaborators, let's say. Mm. One of the new ventures that I think you've uh, embarked on recently is the publication of the book that you mentioned earlier, right? Uh, background Frame Platform uh, published under Suburbia Projects that we had, I think, uh, recently on the show as well. Yeah, so maybe you can perhaps tell us a bit more about that, you know, uh, what made you want to you know, write a book? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. so like you said, okay, so there's a new book out. It's called Background Frame Platform, published by Suburbia Projects. Uh, I think you had Ashran and Nadia on, on the show uh, last week, right? So so they spoke about the mission of all that thing. They are very close friends of mine, and, and I think Ashran has been a constant collaborator for the past five years on competitions and other stuff. And they started Suburbia Projects, uh, I think, last year. And, and they started it, First, as a book retailer, focusing on, let's say, architectural books, uh, especially on the local context, uh, you know, books about Malaysia or Indonesia or books from the region. So that, that is the area that they were trying to kind of focus on. And I think at some point last year, uh, I can't remember whether it was Ashran or Nadia, I think it was Ashran who asked me, like, oh, if you were to do a book, uh, what would you do, right? And then I, I did not immediately respond, but I kind of, kept it at the back of my mind. And then this year, I remember in April, 
in between kind of lockdowns and, 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 and opening up and lockdowns, I woke up one morning and I felt somehow that I need to do a book. That is the, it's the kind of, I mean, I've always wanted to do a book uh, because people who I like, uh, you know, people who I respect and, and admire are people who make books, you know, like uh, writers or even architects that I kind of uh, admire, uh, architects who write, even musicians that I, you know, listen to are people who actually write, you know, who, who wrote books and stuff. So I, I've always liked books and have always wanted to do a book. So I remember just, you know, one morning in April, just randomly texting Ashra and saying, oh, let's do a book, you know. And, you know, like, I've got a title and I've got some essays and let's, let's put a book together. And he said, okay, let's meet. And, you know, and that was in April. And we thought, okay, we'll, we'll finish this book in two months and, and we'll get it out in two months. Uh, it ended up taking kind of the best part of the year and it eventually came out in, in October. So it took six months, you know, from texting him and saying, hey, let's do a book to getting to the book being eventually published took about six months. So that's roughly the kind of background of how the whole thing happened. Mm, but I think the some of the articles uh, written here have, have been written way before, right? So meaning that you've always been actively involved in the process of, I guess, writing? Writing your yeah. thoughts out, I suppose? I Because, let's say, before when I imagine about, you know, writing a book, it's always like, it's such a daunting task because I imagine you need to sit down and write a book from page to, from, you know, from, from cover to, to, you know, from front to back, right? And then suddenly I remember that, okay, I've, I've written over the course of, you know, five or six years, some essays which were published in, you know, like other publications like Architecture Malaysia, which is the journal for PAN, Pertubuhan Architect Malaysia, and also for the Kuala Lumpur Architecture Festival logbook. Uh, I've also been just, you know, writing for online publications and just some text that I've written on my own. So I feel that at that point that maybe instead of writing a book from, you know, cover to cover, there could be an opportunity to make a book, you know, like to assemble things that have been written before uh, into one collection and, and have that be a book instead. Not a, a, a book that you have to read from introduction to conclusion, but a book that you can go through and, and you know, uh, read the different essays and, 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 and kind of enjoy them as standalone pieces uh, without necessarily the need to kind of you know, start from one, you know, and 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 at, at the back, right? So yeah, so it's it's made up of uh four essays that have been published before, uh one old essay that was never published, and then during the process of editing the book, uh, I I wrote three new pieces. So yeah, so it's a mix of some pieces which are from as old as two thousand fifteen, and some pieces which were written in um, May or June of this year. Hmm. Um, one interesting aspect that I would like to talk about is the title, which is derived from your uh, one of the many different hats that you wear. Uh, from your, I, I think, your identity as an educator. Uh, I think we didn't speak about that the last time we spoke. So yeah, maybe perhaps you can explain a bit. Uh, where did you derive this title from? Yeah. So the, the so it's a very interesting story about the title because so when we decided to make a book, we got a kind of a team together. So it was myself and then Ashran and Nadia from Suburbia. Uh, and then we got in touch with uh, Lim Xiaoyun from uh, Malaysia Design Archive and, and um, Amanda Gale. So Amanda Gale and Lim Xiaoyun are also the people behind, uh, uh, two of the people behind uh, Cloud Online, this kind of uh, arts uh, collective, design collective. And we got them on board for Xiao to kind of edit the text and for Amanda to kind of do the graphic design and, and layout of the book. 
So I originally had a different title uh, for the book. Uh, my original title for the book, uh, it was meant to be called uh, The Case of Razak Mansions and Other Architectural Folk Tales. Right? Uh, so when I presented that title, uh, like no one was impressed with the title, like apart from me. Like I thought I thought it was a brilliant title, but everybody else said, no, that doesn't work. Uh, so uh, then Xiao took, uh, of course, as an editor, she went through all the text, right? And then uh, at the same time, of course, uh, uh, as part of my teaching activities in Taylor's University, I teach in the master's program at a thesis uh, studio where I run a thesis unit or a thesis cluster called Background, Frame, and Platform. So meaning that when the students do their one-year-long thesis project, they would pick the kind of thesis cluster or thesis group that they would do their projects uh, under. So my cluster is called Background Frame and Platform. Uh, but I did not want to write about that yet. Like I did not want to write about, you know, the, the student's work or any of that. Uh, but when the editor, Xiao, when, when she went through all the texts, uh, I remember in one of the meetings, she said, well, all of your texts, there, there, there's, there's a very clear theme about a background and frame. Right. Uh, and, and of course, that we have not even discussed this whole thing. And, and I don't think she was aware of my teaching activities to that extent. So I was very surprised that she picked up on, on you know, the idea of background frame and that which was, you know, in, in, in parallel was already something that I was doing uh, in, in my teaching activity in Taylor's University. So then we've decided to go, well, let's just use that. You know? Let's use background frame platform. But we kind of remove the end uh, from the whole thing. So instead of background frame and platform, it became background frame platform. Uh, and I think it was interesting because the theme of the text was picked up by someone else uh, who, who said that, okay, there's a clear theme of you know background and frame in all of these texts that you wrote over a period of five years. Because I was totally not, not aware of that. You know, like I was writing each of these essays as separate individual pieces and I have never thought of them as, you know, being about or around the same theme. Uh, so to have someone kind of pointed that out was kind of extremely interesting, fascinating. And I guess now that you, when I reflect on the text, I guess, you know, those themes have always been there uh, in, in, in my writing without me, you know, really kind of consciously writing about it. Yeah. Um, one interesting aspect that I gather from reading that section of the book is how um, there's a certain form of humility when it comes to uh, you admitting that, you know, teaching is not so much about, you know, imparting knowledge, but it's also about learning and how it's a it's a continuous learning process, right? Um, how important is it to develop this kind of mindset, especially in the architectural field? Yeah, yeah. Because I think I mean, architecture itself is, a, is kind of a lifelong uh, process of learning, right? I think even as an architect, you're always continuously learning new things, you know, be it from a technical point of view or be it from, you know, philosophical or even just the way that people behave. And I think uh, one of the things that happened in in teaching was that, let's say before, uh, I think when we last spoke, I was mainly teaching the undergraduate students. And I think when you are teaching or uh, conducting classes with undergraduate students, uh, there is more of that kind of process of teaching or, or instructing or kind of telling them how to do certain things or how to kind of draw or how to design, right? But when you start teaching uh, master students, especially at thesis level, you start to realize that it's not really a process where these students who are quite you know, mature students, they are not there to be taught, you know, they are there to kind of embark on a process of discovery. And then I, I re- realized was that 
the thesis, I'm not teaching them how to do a thesis. I'm kind of, in a way, guiding, but also I'm I'm serving as someone who is engaged with them, you know, uh, on a conversation, on a process of research that they go through as part of the thesis. And I think with the best students, you know, you, you really feel like you are le- really learning along uh, with the students because the aim of doing a thesis, the aim of, uh, for me, that when the students do their thesis project, the aim is always that at the end of that thesis project, they should be the expert of the subject of the thesis. And, and I'm there to kind of, you know, share in the discovery and the knowledge that they gain while conducting that process. So I think that was such an eye-opening that the process of teaching is not so much, you know, uh, that you are uh, kind of someone who knows it all and then tell the students, okay, this is how you do it. But it's a process of, you know, asking questions, you know, let's say, what do you want to do? You know, what do you think? And I think now, because now I teach in both the master's and the undergraduate program, I've been kind of gradually trying to apply the same method with undergraduate students. Of course, they require a bit more kind of uh, instruction, I guess, because they're still kind of, kind of coming to grasp uh, with the skills which are required in, in learning architecture. But I, I find that when you treat students as, you know, as adults and when you treat them uh, or when you have engaged with them in a conversation rather than you give them instruction, I find that that is a more fruitful uh, process of teaching and learning and, and it's fruitful both for the student and the teacher you know? so I, I guess that's how I see it you know, that, that, and of course I think for me being you know teaching architecture is not so much because I think I know a lot of things that I can teach people but secretly it has always been seen uh, you know I've always seen it as an opportunity to learn architecture to con- kind of continuously learn about this field uh, and that's I guess is the reason why I teach. You know, like I said in the book, the reason for teaching is because you want to learn. And yeah, and, 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 and I'm still being surprised by students who come up with uh, interesting uh, ideas or, or point out interesting findings that I've never, you know, never came across before. And that's the, the joy of teaching is, is seeing students develop into kind of, you know, the kind of person that they want to be. And, and the joy is in kind of realizing how much you actually do not know, you know and I guess that is a humbling like teaching is a humbling process and, and I think if you're involved in teaching and you do not feel that way then you know, then maybe different priorities I don't know you just heard from Nazmi Anwar, author of a collection of essays on architecture called Background Frame Platform, published by Sabubia Projects. We're going to make way for some messages. Stay tuned, I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin. Nazmi Anwar, usually known for his initiative called Normal Architecture, joins me this week to talk about his recently published book called Background Frame Platform. True to form, the book is a collection of his unique musings and observations of everything architecture-related, including how we utilize our empty spaces and his job as an educator teaching architecture. Another interesting topic that he touched on in the book was his experience doing research on the now-demolished Razak Mansion. He recalls that experience and what his team found out. So Razak Mansion was a... I mean, Razak Mansion was a... It was a housing kind of... Uh, 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 
a uh, housing project, uh, kind of a public uh, housing project, uh, because it's uh, it's owned, it was owned by DBKL, uh, and it was a it was already demolished. Now now it's gone because it's uh, what is being built in its place now is a project called uh, Razak City. So if you go online, if you Google Razak City, you would see this kind of development. Uh, of super high density towers, let's say 40, 40 plus story towers, uh, uh, with about 6,000 units, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but the Raza Mansion project that we kind of uh, studied, that we did the research on, uh, we were fascinated by it because we were part of this, uh, and and I say we because it was again a collective project uh, that involved uh, a few different uh, people uh, who has since become. Uh, kind of regular collaborators and and contributors to what we do, uh, so we were involved in this kind of uh, global or international research called Framing the Common, which was about looking at the common spaces in housing projects in four cities: uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Mumbai, uh, Bogota, and, and, and Tehran. So the outcome of that research was kind of one year, one one and a half years research was exhibited at the uh, the Venice Biennale in 2016 uh, and also in in, in in Petaling Jaya. And I think the first time I, or the second time I came on BFM was to talk about that exhibition and that project. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we documented Raza Mansions and I think in the beginning we were also keen to kind of document uh, the lives of the people living there and what they are doing and how they are engaging or they are engaged with the, uh, the, the, the open spaces. Uh, but eventually, we realized that as architects, we are not probably not the best people to kind of, uh, you know, study people. Like I think we uh, often architects tend to think that they can do a lot, that they can be an expert about, you know, society, economy, uh, 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 the economy, uh, culture, whatever. But we we felt that. It was we were as architects as people who design a space we were at a bit of a disadvantage if we were to go in and kind of document uh, you know the lives of people uh, because we lack those kind of uh, you know uh, uh, sociological kind of skills we don't have any foundation in in sociolo- sociological research so in so in the end the project really became about common spaces where we documented you know corridors we documented um, the courtyard of the building because the, the the main block in Razak Mansion was a very big square building with a with a courtyard in the middle and that courtyard is where you know people would exercise they would there are some kind of gardening plots there are you know places where they dry their clothes and their mattresses and whatever uh, and so by focusing on the physical aspects of the space of course by by when we look at the physical we cannot deny I and mean, we cannot help but document some aspects on how these spaces are used But at the end of the day, it became, we felt that it, it became about open spaces and it became about how, what you know, the importance of open spaces in the city. And I think that kind of importance was kind of further highlighted when when the Razak Mansion project was demolished uh, because it was a housing project with not very high density. It was like five stories and in total, there was probably about 600 units. And there was a lot of open spaces, you know, green areas in between the housing blocks. And it was kind of very rare even at that time. So, But now that is being replaced by this kind of super high-end development where there's almost no, you know, shed space or the amount of shed space is kind of, uh, is in is very disproportionate compared to the density of the whole thing. 
we realized that the the true value of the research that we did was to actually look at the you know exactly the value of common space uh, the value of emptiness that as an architect you are not only it's, your task is not only to kind of design and construct the physical space but to perhaps to leave some space uh, for things to happen right and I think that is related back to this whole idea of kind of background frame and platform where the architecture is there but it leaves space uh, it leaves the kind of possibility for other things to happen. Uh, and I think that kind of architecture has always been the most fascinating to me, you know, where an architecture that allow for other kind of unplanned things to happen rather than an architecture that is very strict uh, in terms of the division of space, function and use and things like that. Yeah, so so I felt that the essay was kind of very central and I like how the name of the uh, project is very local. Like it's something that someone like most Malaysians could relate to. Uh, and that's why I proposed that as the title of the book, you know, the case of Raza mentions and other architectural folktales. But like I mentioned, no one was kind of, no one was very, um, you know, uh, like no one was on board with the title. Mm. Um, going back to uh, Razak mentioned what I find quite interesting is that you know after reading your conclusion I feel like to a certain extent we already got it right quote unquote in the first place and it feels like we're maybe regressing in terms of our focus uh, do you think that's the case especially when it comes to uh, you know a place like Razak mentioned in terms of the way it's designed to somehow allow for natural interactions between the residents and how you know there's a common space for people to mingle and interact with. It feels like maybe, yeah, we already got it right in the first place, right? To an extent, if you think about it. Yeah, because I think, I mean, it's again, it's tied to this whole idea of progress, right? I mean, progress doesn't necessarily mean, you know, building bigger buildings or, you know, prettier buildings or taller buildings. You know, I mean, I think part of progress and part of being kind of cultured or being developed is also to kind of recognize what, you know, things or what kind of spaces uh, which are already kind of there, you know, or, or at least to learn from the value of these things to ensure that even when you do new things, uh, the lessons from the past is kind of uh, applied, right? Rather than trying to invent, you know, new things and say, oh, okay, now we go from Raza Mansions to Raza City, it's newer, it's bigger, it's blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the quality of the spaces, it's quite, you know, questionable, right? So I think it's, when you talk about progress, what is it that we aspire to? Is it newness? You know, is it bigger things? Is it more? I suspect that, let's say, the way that things are done, you know, the idea of progress, progress equals more, you know, more cars, more you know, highways, more apartment units. So, so I think we need to question, you know, this idea of progress, meaning that you keep on adding things, you know, uh, at some point we need to, you know, reflect on, on what we have before before it's gone. Mm. Um, another uh, interesting segment that I gather from the book is uh, your observation of Pasar Borong Selayang. Uh, I have I've had the, I guess, uh, experience of visiting the area, I think, a couple of years back. And I yeah, I can exactly see and understand your perspective on the space itself. But I think for listeners out there who are not as familiar with Pasar Borong Selayang, maybe you can share a bit, you know, your, your observations of the area and and your musings on, on you know, the location itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the essay that Hanif was referring to is the one called uh, Under the Bridge, uh, some notes on the appropriation of infrastructure and uh, residual space. So this essay was written, I think in, yeah, like I'm 
when I I've almost forgotten when it was written. Probably in 2016. Uh, and it was kind of a a very quick observation on uh, the things that are happening uh, in the area around uh, Pasar Borong Selayang. So, uh, I mean, if you go there now, there's a new pasar that has been built. Uh, when this essay was written, I think it was in the beginning stages of kind of demolishing the old pasar and uh, relocating the vendors and then, you know, getting on with building the new one. Um, and that pasar has a kind of a personal uh, connection because I used to follow my, my father uh, to go and buy fishes there, you know, to go and buy food items uh, when, when I was a kid uh, because we used to live in, in, in Gomba and, and we would drive there on Sunday uh, mornings. And I used to really hate, you know, going to this place. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm just, you know, being dragged along to kind of carry the fishes. And I did not really enjoy it. And then as an adult, because then I now live near that area, of course, I end up going there again to kind of, you know, get uh, uh, food items and stuff, you know, uh, get fishes. And then I was kind of forced to kind of encounter the same thing again. And it was it became very fascinating. Because sometimes when I go there, I end up, you know, waiting in the car while my wife would go you know, to get uh, fruit from roadside stalls or whatever. So we go there quite often, uh, I must say. And... So let's say while well, park under you know flyovers and under bridges, you start to kind of observe uh, a lot of different things that happen there. Uh, namely, I think in the in the in the essay that I was talking about, was back then there was a very heavy, well, it was still an area which is very heavy in traffic, but you get people kind of uh, selling things on the road. So the road, which is kind of an infrastructure for vehicular circulation, is appropriated and it became a market, right? like like almost an informal market where people would be selling fishes on the road itself, you know, like with polystyrene boxes and whatever. And this all happened kind of uh, under the shade of the infrastructure because you have the flyovers, which is kind of another crazy kind of Malaysian thing, uh, which kind of snakes around the area and, and carves up the area. And so underneath these flyovers, you find, you know, people selling things, you find eateries. There was there was a very good kind of bakso place underneath this flyover. I'm not sure whether it's still there now. And you have people selling fruits and everything. And so that whole essay was about kind of how uh, infrastructure which are designed for something else, you know, for vehicular circulation, for uh, shortcuts between, you know, different uh, housing developments. This infrastructure, uh, due to the, their physical nature, is appropriated to become other things. The road becomes a market. Uh, the flyover becomes a huge concrete canopy under which people start to do uh, engage in, in kind of uh, informal activities. So that essay was about that. As I say, it's kind of uh, almost kind of a celebration of these informal things that happen in between uh, this kind of very formalized infrastructure, right? So I think, yeah, and I guess that is a theme that, again, you can relate it to the kind of informal things that happen uh, in the courtyard of Raza mansions and also the kind of other, my other area of interest. Again, it relates to the whole idea of, you know, background frame and platform uh, architecture or, or structures that allow for other things to happen. Mm. Uh, what I like about it is that you also acknowledge the fact that you know there is an attempt to formalize the informal, right? Yeah. As you as you put it in the book, uh, do you think that this is something that we should do more often? And you know, do you think that it'll take away from the quote unquote the romanticism of how you know these places have been appropriated? You know, like you said, uh, informally by uh, you know the people. If you start formalizing the informal, will it take away from the beauty of it all? Uh, I mean, I I can understand the I I I understand the rationale for kind of formalizing things, right? Because then you can start to kind of control, you can start to kind of uh, manage 
you can start to kind of put things in order. And of course, let's say when you look at it in the perspective of, let's say, you know, hygiene or cleanliness or whatever, uh, I guess there's value in kind of, you know, putting things in order. But at the same time, most of the time, uh, the, the, the reason that all these kind of activities are very, you know, lively and, and spontaneous is exactly because it, you know, organically happens in these spaces. And usually when they put into kind of more formal structures, what tend to happen is that it becomes a bit sterile. Yes, it's much cleaner. Yes, it's kind of easier to manage. But, you know, when has management ever been kind of exciting? Right, so so I think it's a it's kind of a give and take, uh, and often when it's formalized, things become cleaner. You may get more people, but the kind of original excitement or the kind of original uh, casualness of it all uh, is is very often lost. And, and often from that observation, is this is that exactly that kind of casualness or informality that makes the whole thing uh, for me uh, fascinating, right? So, I mean, maybe certain people, I mean, for people who, who see them as mess, right, who see them as, oh, we need to clean up then, I mean, now we need to co- collect the kind of, all the garbage underneath. I mean, of course, that's an issue, right? And that's a real issue. But that's not an issue where you should say that, oh, just because there are, you know, trash around, then we should then, you know, go to the extreme and just polish the whole thing and, and kind of you know, sterilize everything. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's the thing. Because I think, and for every comment like yours that sort of like see the beauty in in all this so-called mess or randomness, there are people out there who are they don't really celebrate that kind of informalities that 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 you you know describe in your book. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that the the informality is very interesting, especially because if you look at the the case of the Pasaborong, right uh, under the bridge, so you have uh, it's not just kind of completely random informalized things. It's it's kind of an informal condition. Uh, that came about because of an interaction between uh, this kind of informal need with the kind of formal infrastructure. So you can look at the infrastructure of the flyover and the road as kind of a frame or platform uh, in which this kind of informal things happen. Right? So it's, I think it's not so much to reject the formal, but I'm always interested to see the kind of spark or the kind of interesting condition that came about when there's a kind of almost kind of a subtle negotiation between the informal condition and the formal structure that, that you can find there, right? So, so I think the, the, the kind of mix or the kind of meeting between the formal and informal is the thing that generates that kind of friction. Uh, and that is what makes it, in a way, exciting for me. And also because if, if you look at infrastructure, if you look at bridges, if you look at flyovers, often the spaces, and there is space underneath, right? Uh, which is defined by the columns and the structure, which is then suddenly is shaded because you have the flyover on top. But that space just becomes, you know, wasted space or dead space. It's not used, right? Uh, and, and then these people started to kind of, you know, put their stores and whatever. And, and I guess it's making use of space, you know. And, 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 and I think that is such a great thing to see, uh, kind of very fascinating that rather than space being wasted, it's being put to use. You know? Of course, it leads to other things like, you know, congestion or it leads to uh, you know mess or it leads to you know uh, uh, some rubbish on the street right? but yeah but i mean those are those are the facts of life now i guess right mm. speaking of flyovers i also like your short digression about flyovers in which you there's this one line that i, I kind of like 
like I want to perhaps you know get your perspective on. You said that KL is a city best consumed as silhouettes in small doses, and that's your I think to a certain extent your observation of how the best way to experience KL is via the flyovers. Yeah, <laughs> I find that very very interesting. Yeah, maybe you can share a bit as to how you reached that conclusion. Yeah, I mean I, I, again perhaps it's uh, well on my part perhaps it's an it's kind of an over romanticization of infrastructure. I mean, personally, I've always liked uh, the structure of flyovers and, you know, this big concrete structure that connects. Uh, but at the same time, if you look carefully, uh, this structure, while they connect point A to point B, uh, when they pass through kind of the urban fabric, it also obviously kind of disconnects and start to cut up the urban fabric. So uh, I think as a disclaimer, uh, when, when this essay was written kind of six years, five years ago, there was still a very strong fascination uh, with flyovers. Now, like today, we see so much more flyovers in KL, and some which are built very close to buildings, and some which are you know which if you go to certain you know areas in in, in KL or Selangor, you would find that certain area become completely dark because you have three layers of flyovers on top, right? And once it gets to that scale, it it becomes something that is not so. Uh, attractive anymore. I think then it becomes kind of it starts to become over, over infrastructure. You know uh, that there's too much structure, and then and then it starts to create this kind of very gloomy or very you know strange condition of you know cars flying next to buildings and stuff like that. So on one hand, uh, I I I'm st- I'm starting to kind of doubt my own kind of fascination with flyovers. Uh, you know since that essay was written. Uh, that idea of let's say uh, KL as a city consumed through uh, automobile travel is still very fascinating. For example, if you go on the MRR two, right, uh, or, or if you go on, uh, which is this kind of ring road that takes you around, almost around Greater KL, then you see you know, different parts of KL, and and by kind of creating that shortcut from A to B, you also kind of taking a short glimpse through KL, and of course certain parts of KL, like the old heart of the city is still an area that needs to be experienced uh, on foot, that you need to kind of walk across those areas and, and experience those kind of buildings and those places on foot. But I think the city, because it has become so big, where if you look at KL now, it's no longer, I, I don't see it as one kind of very clear uh, city, but it has become this kind of sprawl. And you could also, I think one of the things that I said in the essay was that you can read KL as, as a set of archi- archipelagos, you, know, you see this kind of mid valley is a chunk on its own as, as archipelago. You see kind of uh, Mutiara Damansara as its own thing. These chunks of huge development, uh, which is kind of almost detached. You know, these uh, edifices I call them. There's a big, you know, big chunk of development, big chunk of buildings, edifices, which are very di- quite disconnected from the fabric of the city. And, and I think the only way that you get a good understanding of this condition of KL as an urban area which is fragmented uh, into big chunks of development uh, cut by infrastructure, the only way that you can really read that condition and uh, appreciate and experience that condition is by driving on this very infrastructure that is cutting it to bits. right? So I think on one hand, it's not such a good thing that the city is being fragmented. On the other hand, the element that is fragmenting it is the element that allows you to see that condition of fragmentation. So, uh, yeah, so I think that you, you imagine the infrastructure is always talked about as something that connects, but more and more when you have too much of them, they, they start to kind of you know, disconnect uh, the city. 
I mean, I, I, I think that in order to understand all of KL, you need to kind of drive through it. Uh, it's not, I mean, if, if, you, if you go to very traditional European city, it's, it's like in, in order to understand it, you have to walk the city. Right? But, but I feel KL is a different kind of, it's a different kind of entity which you cannot, you cannot see it from that European, uh, that, that idealized version of cities, you know, with plazas and streets, you know. I mean, maybe the old part of KL could be seen or, or read through that lens. But I think as a whole, you know, the greater KL as an urban entity, uh, you know, which is made up of, uh, you know, sprawl and infrastructure and urban edifices or archipelagos, is something that needs to be, you need to, you know, you need to drive around the whole thing to kind of understand the magnitude of what is happening. Mm. Okay, let's go back to Background Frame Platform. Uh, this is your first book. Are you going to continue to write and perhaps you know, maybe write an actual book from introduction to outro? You know, considering that this is a collection of essays, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, well, I would like to uh, at some point. But I guess, I mean, the reason that the, the, the essay format is kind of very attractive uh, for me is because I tend to kind of think or uh, construct ideas in smaller chunks, you know. I, I don't really, like, I don't sit down to write, you know, like a thousand-page manuscript, you know. Like, I don't have kind of, I, I cannot, you know, uh, approach it like that. Like, I've, I'm always, I've always written in kind of bite-sized pieces, and sometimes they make sense together, uh, sometimes they don't, right? Uh, but of course, I think, of course, there is that ambition to, to hopefully... Uh, at some point, write about uh, you know something as a consistent train of thought uh, from you know introduction to conclusion as kind of a book. I don't yet know what that book will be about, but I think that is something that I would definitely, I mean, something that I would like to see happening uh, in the uh, in the near future. Uh, yeah, but at, at the moment now, I'm 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 still kind of kind of on it that, you know, Suburbia have decided to kind of, you know, work with me and, and publish this collection of essays. And I'm kind of quite interested to hear from people, uh, you know, like some people have, have, have come back to me and told me uh, which, like I, I'm always very interested to hear from people who bought the book, which essays that they, they enjoy the most and why, right? And someone was asking me which essay did I, which is the essay that I like the most. And of course, that's impossible to say because I wrote all of them. It's difficult to kind of pick one. Uh, so I'm still in the process of trying to digest this book in terms of what people think about it or how they respond to it and whether, let's say, the next thing that I write or I do, should it be kind of an extension of this or should it be... Uh, something else but I think uh, I, I, I suspect uh, kind of the hunch of it is that I feel that the the gist or the kind of point of departure for the next book is perhaps already somewhere in the pages of, of, of this one alright fantastic looking forward to that um, as for your other initiatives anything uh, coming up in the future uh, anything else uh not really uh i don't think uh, i cannot say anything else there are i mean there are there are a few other things that i've written uh, for other publications which might be coming out in the next few months perhaps uh so that is in a way a continuation of this kind of the 
the rhythm of writing has kind of somehow continued, although that's not kind of my, for my own kind of book. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, others are, I guess, uh, in terms of teaching, I, I'm now confronted with the question of whether if I do, if I continue, uh, you know, background frame and platform as the thesis unit for next year, or have I done enough and should I then move to something else? So I, I'm in the process of, let's say, trying to figure out should the next kind of agenda for teaching, should it be uh, still based on around this, these ideas or should it be around something else or should it be something that is inside the book but is perhaps not so apparent at the moment. So I think I'm, I'm in the process of figuring out in a way the extensions of this book into other activities such as uh, teaching, writing and collaborating with other people. All right, fantastic. Okay, so uh, for people out there who would like to get your book, where can they go to? Oh uh, yeah, for people who would like to purchase the book, uh, it's available for purchase via Suburbia Projects. So if you go uh, on Instagram uh, on their Instagram page, uh, Suburbia Projects, uh, do follow them because they they also bring in other interesting regional and international publications, and I think they have a few exciting uh, publications in the pipeline. So uh, on the Instagram, you can find a link to purchase the book. Also, the book is available now in Pintabudi, uh, in, uh, in the Zongshan building. So if you if you don't want to kind of deal with shipping or you know the post, then you can drop by Pintabudi and it's available uh, for purchase there as well. And I think in the upcoming month, it will be available in a few more bookshops. But uh, I will, I think Suburbia will update. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and that was Nazmi Anwar, author of the recently published Background Frame Platform, a collection of essays on his personal thoughts, observations and experiences in the architecture field so far. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store and also Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharuddin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Stay safe and join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.